Welcome to Sergey Ross Podcast. You are here because we want to expose you to successful people from multiple industries and give you insights and strategies that will help you hopefully execute on your dreams. My guest today is coming from Australia. He is a head coach of AFL Team Canada, the National Men's Australian Rules Football Program. He's also part of endurance sports business called Inner Voice and the author of the book, Where Others Won't, that talks specifically about how to learn from other industries to become much better and get to the next level, specifically sports into business world. He was born in Canberra, the city of Australia, was raised in Melbourne, and then when he turned 25, he moved to, uh, to Canada, to Toronto. He's an active blogger. He has a lot of articles on LinkedIn, on Medium, and really great insights, not only from the business side, but obviously from the sports side. Cody Royal, thank you so much for joining me today. So, okay, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, um, why don't we just start with you telling me a little bit about your journey? How did you, what did you do in Australia, and then how you made a decision to move in Canada? Yeah, my journey is very non linear. So, uh, you know, people kind of think you study one thing, then you come out of school and you work in that, and then you kind of, you know, drift off into retirement. But, all I ever wanted to be was a football player, so an Aussie rules player. That was my sport. I was a good junior player. I didn't get drafted into that, and so uh, at you know age 18, 19, 20, I kind of had to scramble a little bit and, and realize that I was probably going to be in the business world. And, and so I'd studied human resources, I ended up working in HR for three years. And then at age 25, I was a little bit restless and, and I wanted to go and work and live overseas just to try it out. And so I looked at a whole bunch of different places. I wasn't set on Toronto necessarily. I looked at Amsterdam, Dubai, Mumbai, Hong Kong, you name it. And uh, Toronto honestly was, I, I, I kind of settled on North America. And then Toronto was a white collar capital and, and I didn't want to go and work in a bar and pull beers for people. And, and so I wanted to you know, get a white collar job. And so I kind of you know, fumbled my way into Toronto and now I'm sitting here nine years later and I have been back to Australia, but I, I, I haven't lived there since. Yeah. And so, yeah, even that was, it was just a, a little bit of a test you know, for myself, move overseas, see what I can make of myself, see what working, you know, outside of Australia is like, because I think what people forget is Australia is very, very, very remote, <laughs> and there's there's no different cultures down there. It's just you on an island, and so the prospect of working overseas, and especially in North America, where you kind of always have that thing with the United States and being able to you know kind of make it in the states, uh, that was really attractive to me. So that's. Uh, Part of the reason I'm still here is is that that idea. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit about how did you adapt from uh, Australian culture to North American because it is a big change, as you alluded to. What what was what was difficult at first, and what did you have to maybe test and test and implement, just see what works. You and I have spoken about this before. You know, we're both immigrants and. For me, you know, my immigrant story is the same as, as most others. You know, I'm a, I'm a white male and I think people kind of think that that means that I just go straight into the ivory tower. But for me, it certainly wasn't like that. I went from a really successful job, uh, a very high salary in Australia to working minimum wage at the Rogers Centre selling phones when I got to Canada. And a lot of it was that I didn't have Canadian experience. And so... You know, I, I had to take, I wouldn't even say it was one step back, I'd say it was two or three steps back to move forward. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back because it's led me on the journey that I'm on and, and I, I don't regret anything. But yeah, it, it certainly, it wasn't easy. There's a lot of similarities, don't get me wrong. Language, mm. there's no language barrier here. There's, you know, there's streetcars in Melbourne and there's streetcars in Toronto and like, there's all these little things, but ultimately, you know, integrating into society, it wasn't that easy. And, you know, thankfully I had an Australian community here that 
kind of grabbed me and, and propped me up a little bit and helped me with housing and you know job interviews and mm-hmm. things like that so I, I owe a lot to that community and I, I try to give back as much as I can because they, they helped me so much but yeah it's it's not as easy as people think but you had a big goal obviously and I think that that really kept you going absolutely yeah and you know I I've never really thought about moving home. Uh, I've really enjoyed my time here and I, I love Canada and I love Toronto. And there's there's a vibe here that I think, you know, if you are industrious and if you do have big goals, Toronto is a place for you to be right. because the whole city is moving in that direction. Tell me about the moment, uh, because I thought it was fascinating when you were early on in your career and you wanted to be a player and then you were very analytical and at some point you realized that you are not going to succeed as a player, you will be much better as a coach because of you being so analytical and breaking down each moment. When was that moment, how you realized that and what was going through your mind at that time? The moment that I knew that this was probably too much for me as a player was, uh, I was playing for Victoria, which is the state. So, It would be the equivalent of playing hockey for Ontario in the juniors. You'd have to be very, very, very good to make that grade, and, and that's the level that I was at. But in those trial games, just watching everyone run around me and, and play as normal, whereas I was choking up, and, and uh, it wasn't that I wasn't skilled enough, it was that I was outthinking myself. And so I, there's a, a specific moment in a game that I can remember where I just thought, like, I'm not up to this. I can't get out of my own head. And then that didn't really equate to coaching until I was maybe 23. And, you know, that pattern just kept repeating itself once I was out playing open men's league, uh, which, again, is very competitive in Australia. It's quite different to how it is in North America in that, You know, after university, everyone goes and plays for their local club side, so their suburban side, and there's a lot of money in that. And you know, often uh, there's you know like mini casinos attached to some of these clubs, and so there's revenue, mm-hmm. and, and so you can actually make quite a bit of money. And right. um, yeah, so I, I went and played that, and the same pattern. Mm-hmm. I was just choking myself mentally, and, and and not just allowing. You know, we call it flow state now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't have that. I was thinking my way out of the flow state. And so, uh, yeah, at 23, I started to dip my toe into coaching and think that I could do that better than the people that were doing it currently. Yeah. And so, I was, well, I'll explore this. And again, someone came and, and picked me up and said, I think you can do this too and, and helped me. And, and I was lucky to have some good mentors. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny that such paralysis by analysis can actually aid you in something else and you know that's something in coaching that you, you really need you really need to analyze things and, and be more mental than physical so but it's the moment of growth right when you are it might be a little bit painful not quite aligned with your vision where you wanted to go but then when you made that realization that i have to do something else that's just the moment you're like you grown and then you stepped into a better direction yeah And it happened again with my writing. I, I wasn't a writer. I didn't study writing. I didn't know an English or a literature major or anything like that. It was just one day I started blogging and I realized that it helped me deal with a lot of my, my own issues and my anger and, and, and a whole range of different things that, that I could explore through getting it out onto paper. And so, yeah, it, it's, it, I've kept revisiting that similar theme as I've gone along and it's, you know, been at those fork in the road moments yeah. for me so I'm, I'm thankful for that totally as we touched on strength and weaknesses this is a very interesting topic because I was learning a lot about that I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to know more how do they figure out do they bet on their strength do they work on their weaknesses in the book uh, in your book you talk about there's two different approaches and it's, it's two different coaching mentalities so to say where some people will like to coach others to iron out their weaknesses uh, so they will be an all-around good player or some will just say dump the weaknesses do the only strength so you have that um, that x factor or that that thing that differentiates you I personally heard a lot of people a lot of successful people like Jeff Bezos Warren Buffett they talk a lot about focus on the strength and Gary Vee as well by the way focus on your strength 
outsource your weaknesses and that's the way forward. What is your perspective on that? I would love to, I'm curious to know. And how does that maybe dependent on the industry you're in or in the profession you're in? Yeah, my first thing that I would say to that is there's context to everything. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that in any discipline, in any, uh, anything you can think of, absolutes don't exist and, and they, you don't thrive in absolutes. So I, I would never say only work on your strengths, but I think it's, it's certainly closer to that would be, would be my idea behind it. Um, and, you know, Gary Vee is, is, is great in the way he describes it in that you've got to have that self-awareness. A lot of people don't know what their strengths are. And so you've really got to dig and, and, and look around you and, and understand yourself first to understand what those strengths are. And it comes with a certain amount of ego and it comes with a certain amount of uh, reality that can be quite uncomfortable. But if, if we can latch onto something that we are good at or that we, we do enjoy, it doesn't even need to be that you're good at it. You could enjoy playing music and that could become your strength. I would say that's a, a much better path to be on than constantly working on your weaknesses, which was kind of this old, you know, militaristic style, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, mm. you know, let's get better at the things we're not good at so that we can be even across the board. Screw that, man. Do what you love, do what you're good at, and do it better than other people. How do you, anybody can um, have a better sense of where they are strong in and where they weaken? Do What kind of maybe patterns they look at uh, so they can have a better way to, to figure that out from, from your experience? I would say writing it down, diarising what you do would be a good way to start. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about right now and you don't know how to identify your strengths and you're not particularly self-aware or you don't understand the broader spectrum of, uh, of what people think of you, I would say write it down, write down every activity that you do and, and you'll see patterns. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're enjoying writing down and diarising, you might be a writer mm. and you have an opportunity now to go and do that and make that your profession. And the thing that we forget so easily is this is the first generation where we can do that. Our, our parents and our grandparents didn't have that luxury. They were still trying to get to a point of abundance and having enough to support themselves. They didn't get to travel. They didn't get to make up their careers. If they worked in the town with the factory, they went and worked at the factory until they retired. And so, you know, we have this opportunity now and, and I'd say, don't waste it. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing would be, if you, if you can't find it, <clears throat> have someone else point it out to you. Right. Often a third perspective, third person perspective is, is better and someone can come and say to you, I think you're a good artist or those, those paintings that you did you don't think they're special, but they're really special, whatever it may be. Right, totally, totally. I've heard uh, something that I've heard recently on a podcast is whenever you create a to-do list or you create a certain plan that you'd like to work on and those items or those things that you continuously keep putting away, keep putting on the back burner, they're your weaknesses. You don't want to get to them. You don't want to get to them. They're still there. They're still there. You never get to them, whatever it is that's something that you're not good at. Good at. So something to, to consider, but great advice. I think that totally, totally makes sense. And you're absolutely right. Just coming from the industrial age into uh, the age we're in right now, we, we get to choose and we get to create everything we want. And it's so important to leverage that opportunity. And the first part is self-awareness. So something that I wanted to ask you, because I rem I've seen that you've taken the Health MBA program online leadership and management workshop from Seth Godin. Talk to me a bit, a little bit about that. What, how do you find the whole experience like, uh, and what were the some of the takeaways that you had? I didn't really know what to expect from the course. Even the way it's described is very airy fairy. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't really tell you what it is, and even now you know, a year and a half after graduating, it's still hard to describe what it actually is. There's no teachers, there's no classes, there's no marks. 
And so the idea of alt-MBA, alternative MBA, is very true. But what you come away with is a fresh perspective on yourself, your goals, the world, what's stopping you. Mm-hmm. And also the power of being challenged. And so to explain what happens is it's a month-long workshop, all online. You're in a cohort of maybe 100 people. And every second day you have class. So uh, it might be <clears throat> Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday. You know, at 6 o'clock on a, on a Tuesday, you'll log on. You'll have a short um, meeting you know, on Zoom. And then you'll break away and you'll deliver a project by midnight. So you've got six hours in your group to deliver a project and, and it's themed around you know, certain things. And if you're familiar with Seth Godin, a lot of the themes will be um, you'll have seen before or heard of before. Yes. But then you go into these feedback loops of once you've delivered your project, everyone else in the class gets to challenge the project. Did you think of this? Why did you make this decision? And you have to then respond. And so what it does is it creates these loops of feedback where everything that you do can be challenged constantly, whether it's online, uh, sorry, where it's live on Zoom, whether it's you know, in, in the, the written format. <coughs> and that's very powerful because it actually replicates the real world. And again, going back to that concept of alt-MBA, the alternate part is that uh, MBAs don't replicate the real world. They replicate yes. the classroom and that doesn't exist anymore. And so what this does is it, it you know, takes the perspective that you're in the workplace in a big corporation, mm-hmm. what your daily life is like. You gotta keep shipping work, deliver work, deliver work, have it challenged. Have it challenged by the market, have it challenged internally by stakeholders. And so, yeah, what you come away with is a new perspective. You, you, you either graduate or you don't. There's no real first class honours. There's no A's and E's and D's. Uh, and what it allowed me to do was ship more work and, and get over myself and get over my fears and get over the humps that exist and just say, let's just get this out there and see what happens. And then we'll iterate and we'll go again. And, and uh, so I recommend it to people that are interested in that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. If you're not interested in getting better and if you're not interested in, in doing great work, don't do it right? because you'll stop showing up because it's hard. This is very cool. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the marketing and brand strategy course I took in uh, at Seneca College and all we essentially did, we, have, we were in a small cohort and we had to create those uh, marketing strategy decks mm-hmm. and we present it to the class and then the class gives us the feedback and in a very much in a similar manner, they, they challenge us on did you do this, did you do that and you whether win or you don't and uh, our professor does not interrupt, he just watches mm-hmm. and that was uh, intimidating at first but the growth you get and the learnings you get are pretty tremendous yeah. from that. You let go of your inhibitions very quickly when you're in that scenario. So the first one, you'll always have your back up and, and you, you, know, you like to respond that yes, you thought of everything. But ultimately, the, the real power is in the ability to say, I didn't think of that. Mm. But thank you for mentioning it because that's actually a better idea than the one that I had. Yeah, it's the moment of growth. The yeah. moment to like realize, sure, I admit that and um, I'll consider that in the future. Right. Uh, and that's how things get better. And again, going back to that idea of it replicating the workplace is that's how workplaces get better and that's how teams get better. And, and I've tried to write about that in my book is when, you, when you're able to say, actually, that's a better idea than what we're doing rather than, well, that's my idea, so that's the one we should do, that's when you see real success. And speaking of the book, you wrote the book where others won't, and the whole concept is to look at alternative ways of doing things and looking at for when we are looking at the business world or the corporate world, what business can learn from sports and lessons from the very best, the highest performing sports teams. And so... Talk to me a little bit about the concept of going the opposite way of others and how does that came about to the idea of the book? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the, the foundational idea behind the book is that people are a competitive advantage. Businesses are just realizing this now. We've always thought that products or services or innovation, uh, a faster supply chain was the competitive advantage. Whereas now, you know, Apple can come out with a new operating system today and tomorrow some kid in a basement in Russia has replicated that and is selling it for half the price. And so the X factor really becomes the people. And so the, the funny thing is the sports world has always been like that. And so there are a lot of ideas around recruitment and leadership and culture and performance that we can actually rip from professional sports because all, all there's really ever been is a coach and a group of players that go out and play basketball. And so that coach has had to better organize, better facilitate, you know, back strengths of players, you know, adapt game plans around strengths of players. And so what I wanted to highlight was that idea that there are all there are decades and decades of quality tested people strategies that exist in pro sports that we don't look at because we've kind of pigeonholed mm -hmm. sports as a motivational category and we'll bring in the quarterback to give a, a motivational speech but we won't dig into the recruitment process or you know how they overcome challenges or what happens when things aren't going well or what happens when we're losing constantly they're all challenges that we face mm -hmm. in the business world and so there are answers there and I just tried to point out a couple of them totally and, and something that I had a question specifically around that that in the book that it mentions that making mistakes in sports it's it's totally acceptable and it's a part of the culture but on the other hand making mistakes in the corporate world it makes you look silly you don't want to do that it's uh, and then you don't want to look weird um, and then your team's gonna like like it will affect your team spirit and it kind of reminded me of that growth mindset versus like fixed mindset. How does that, how does that work? What, what is, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? How does that relate to the mindset? And what, is there any trends that it's changing in the business world? The, the idea is that in sports, what we do is we practice adversity constantly. So an easy example is, it's a pretty famous example, but Manchester United used to practice basically injury time so you know they needed to score and there's two minutes to go in the game and they would practice that and they would practice that over and over and over again so it's an adverse situation that they practiced in and you, you can see that kind of famous team under Sir Alex Ferguson the amount of injury time goals that they scored was off the charts to the point where it you know, there's, there's nicknames for it, like Fergie time, right? Mm. And, and so we do that in sports and, and that's practicing in, in an adverse situation. Whereas we don't do that in business at all. We don't, you know, I wrote a blog called the only adversity that we train for is the, the fire alarm. And even then we only do it every six months. And so the idea is that I think we need to fail more. We need to celebrate failure and we need to practice failure. And so there's no point always practicing like the perfect cold call because it never happens. And, mm. and I've done it, I've, I've made mm. the thousand cold calls mm. when I didn't know what I was selling and I didn't know how to sell and I, you know, yeah. and, and you would get that, that response from the person be like, oh, I don't know how to answer that and you freeze up. Whereas if we start practicing for that, we can get over that hurdle and, and learn how to address uh, those failures more easily. Mm. Um, there are certainly examples of this in the business world and, and this is where Silicon Valley and kind of the tech movement have been great because it's they're constantly innovating and so they're constantly failing. Uh, so there's, there's certainly lessons to be learned from that but I, I don't think that's made it into the mainstream uh, again because what happens is people have worked really hard to get their promotion to be a director so for them to then go, well, let's go and fail, and I'm going to look yeah. bad, uh, that's really hard for people. That's fascinating, and I think uh, one of the examples that comes to mind with applying Silicon Valley lessons in, uh, in an industry that is very conservative is Tesla. And uh, we look at what they were able to do with uh, creating an electric vehicle from scratch. It's extraordinary, and one of the 
one of those moments of compliments came when Porsche, they are working on their new electric vehicle that is about to be launched in 2020. And one of the chief, um, chief designers or chief engineers at, at Porsche said, I cannot believe Tesla achieved so much. And uh, he says that it's unbelievable what they were able to create because obviously Porsche did analyze Teslas. And the reason they did it was because Elon brought all the approaches from Silicon Valley, specifically from software startups, applied to to a car industry. And when and I think it was I think he would he talked about the speed gauge clusters. And when he said, well, if you want to update the, the, the this gauge cluster, it will take you like he said a couple of months or a year in the normal car because you have to it and he explained the supply chain it, with tesla it's a software update it's like 10 10 minutes mm -hmm. and it just goes to show like how much you can do when you apply those types of lessons certainly yeah and, and the thing that i would caution about silicon valley is <clears throat> there are certainly leaders like elon musk that have been able to achieve a lot but they achieved the most when it was a private company. And I think the thing that we need to remember is that uh, a lot of these companies, they're only in it for the next big exit. And so I don't think those are the leaders that we should be following because mm. that's not a sustainable methodology. That's just replicating what Wall Street was in the 80s in, in that how can I make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible. But where you see the real innovation, to your point, is was early on in the days of Tesla and early on in the days of Netflix, before they were public companies, mm. when when they didn't have that outside pressure of, of shareholders. Yeah. Th that's where the magic was, and, and that's the lessons that we should be looking at. Mm. <clears throat> what were they able to create then, when they could fail consistently over and over and over again because they were on the private dollar rather than the public dollar? And we had a conversation yes. off air about Apple, and, and it's much the same is, is you start to look at it from a, a perspective of failure and how they haven't failed in a long time or they haven't made risky choices in a long time. It's a similar thing. Yeah, Apple is a fascinating example. I mean, they're in a, in a, between the rock and a hard place right now, and what they're going to do, like they, uh, they have a bread and butter product that's getting really. Um, iPhone getting so much more pressure out of from the Chinese manufacturers and what they really can they don't have any other products in the pipeline the car even if it's coming we don't know when and what it's gonna look like right. but uh, it's gonna it, it's this is a big challenge absolutely and, and made even bigger by the fact that you know they're a public company yeah. and so they don't get to mess up exactly um, whereas <clears throat> yeah like I said the, the, the real lessons from that whole Silicon Valley movement were early days when there was just failure and, and how those problems were navigated. Uh, I think we can take those ideas and apply them even in small clusters within big companies. So, you know, at a big bank that is a public company, you can still take those lessons and apply them to your team, you know, the accounts payable team or the software development team or the help desk team and, and create a microcosm out of it rather than trying to implement it company-wide, where you're not going to change you know, RBC's 120,000 staff overnight. But you can certainly do that as a manager and, uh, or even as a staff member. Right. You know, say, here's a really good idea. Can we, can we try it within just our team and see if it works? Absolutely. There's definitely lessons to be learned there. <coughs> I wanted to ask you about the coaching mindset in the companies because I don't find that a lot of companies have that mindset. and. Like what kind of practice and patience does it require a company to have for them to hire a B player consciously and then convert them into A players? Uh, the best way that I've seen that put is, is by Patty McCord talking of, mm. of Netflix. And it's that the notion of A players and B players really doesn't exist in that one person's A player is going to be another person's B player is going to be another person's C player. And so ideally what you're looking for, the root problem there is recruitment. Right. Um, you know, how are you identifying who your A players are and can you do it repeatedly so you can get as many of your A players into your, your organization? Doesn't matter if they were B players or C players elsewhere, they might actually be an mm -hmm. A player for you. And then once you've got them in there, 
yeah, the notion of coaching, uh, it still doesn't really exist in, in the workplace, in the broader workplace. Or if it does, it would be executive coaching. It's exclusive to the C-suite. The CEO gets a coach or mm. some sort of mentor that they can work with, but everyone else isn't deserving of that. And that's a notion that I disagree with, again, coming from the sports world where I think there's real power in everyone having a coach. And I would even say, you know, each team should essentially have a coach that isn't a manager and doesn't manage day-to-day, -day, you know, re responding to emails, putting your timesheet in, da 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 is actually just there to facilitate coaching of people and the optimization of that person as a whole. You know, companies that would be willing to do that, and there's companies with plenty of cash and they can afford to do it, I think there would be real value there. And the example that I use in, in the book is the Iceland soccer team and, and how they invested in coaching and essentially invested in failure. They failed for a long time and this generation of players got you know, their ass kicked over and over and over again. Plus they had this coaching culture mm -hmm. where you know, one in every hundred people on the island is a, a FIFA accredited coach. You know, uh, 20 years yeah. later, all of a sudden they're beating England and they're, um, you know, they've created this, this wonderful thing. So, uh, yeah, the, the problem is, again, we, we talked about it earlier, it, it's hard for current people to adopt that methodology because it's a long-term play. How do you define the difference between, from the coaching perspective, the manager as a coach and the coach as a coach? What is the, why the manager is not a good choice for that? Well, they're two different things, managing and leading. And at the moment they're bundled together. Right. So the manager is expected to yeah, distribute tasks, uh, monitor those tasks, not fail, you know, only see success, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are things that you can put on a checklist and say, yes, we achieve this. Yes, we achieve this. A leader, on the other hand, in a pure sense, is someone that says, well, here's what's on the horizon. Here's the vision that we're working towards. And I'm going to help you get there. And so again, at the moment, they're, they're, they're bundled together. Mm. A manager would do both of those things in most workplaces. Whereas you could actually split them apart and, and have a leader set the vision and, and kind of drive towards the vision. And the great thing about a vision is you never arrive there. And so what the horizon looks like today isn't gonna be what the horizon looks like tomorrow. And so there's, there's nothing that you can actually check off a checklist. And again, it, this is why it doesn't exist is because companies want to account for everything. Going back to that industrial mm. era, it's like how many nuts came in and how many bolts were they screwed onto and, and all that sort of stuff and we want to checklist everything. And that's why leadership is such a struggle at the moment is because what's success? Where's the, vi like where's, where's the outcome? It doesn't exist. But it's also the fact that even like speaking from the marketing perspective, uh, not everything should be reported on. When you are trying to measure everything in ROI and number of leads, clicks, or impressions, it doesn't work like that because sometimes a good review from a person that you met across the street, that's all you need to know that it works mm -hmm. versus a lot of corporate companies, they want to know, no, we want to know exactly in detail the numbers, the numbers, the numbers, but that does not mean that this thing is working or how effectively it is working. No. And it's becoming a bigger and a bigger trap uh, as we get more and more attached to the numbers and data and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, to my point, going where others won't is there's almost an argument right now to go against data. Mm. Uh, if that's the pattern, then everyone knows that pattern. And so there's no competitive advantage to be had there. You're going to be fighting over you know, one and 2%, whereas in the margins over on the side, away from the data and away from what everyone else is focusing on, there might be 10%. So why not go after the 10% instead of the two? Yeah, 100%. But then the, the notion of risk for those companies like, oh no, we don't want to do that because again, we don't want to fail. Right. Uh, you, have, you give a great example of Home Depot versus GE and the culture difference between one is so focused on the numbers and Home Depot is much, much different, more community-based or more employee-focused uh, company. Yeah, well, that became a, a case study. Case study, yeah. Uh, uh, it was a, a Wharton paper, and I think they still uh, give it to their students. But yeah, essentially, 
the heir to Jack Welch at GE took over Home Depot and, and tried to move Home Depot forward using GE methodology, which is you know famously about numbers and all about numbers. And it just didn't mesh with the culture of the company. Home Depot is very customer service driven. And the first thing to go when you're ruling by the numbers is customer service. Mm because it doesn't make sense. You can't add it up. You can't see it. You know, how many residual sales you get because of customer service, you can't track that. And so, you know, the, the stock price might have increased slightly under that, that CEO, but ultimately it was deemed a, a huge failure because it, it just didn't mesh with the culture. And so, you know, that's one of those things too. It, it's fine for GE to rule the way that they have ruled, but you can't transplant that because those cultural elements don't exist in another organization. So. Totally, totally. And this is, uh, I had a question around the culture. That one was very interesting to me because you you got companies like Netflix and the culture of Netflix is very much like a pro-sports team. They don't consider themselves as a family, they are a team. And so when an employee is no longer needed, it gets laid off as, as happens in the sports team. But then at the same time, you have companies like Wegmans, a retail store that never laid off their employees and they're growing and prospering. Tell me about the difference differences between those two cultures and how does that dependent on the industry how does it work well let's start with the similarities between those two the similarities and the reason i wrote about them is because they're both entrenched in their people now there's different ways of organizing uh, supporting manipulating um, those teams and those people and you know you've got two vastly different ways of doing that ultimately though the focus on their people is what's the most important thing so at Netflix uh, and, and I actually I, I agree with both approaches mm. f- for that matter um, <clears throat> at Netflix who are essentially creating the future or were creating the future in terms of streaming online there were points where they didn't need certain people anymore and certain Uh, engineers had certain expertise that were no longer needed and so you move them on what's the point in keeping them that's I'm okay with that that that's how all companies to a certain extent should operate and then on the Wegman side where they would pour training into all of their staff and you know there was something like 90 days of training or something before they would even let them on the floor in front of customers which is and, insane and they would yeah and and they would fly you know the the cheese guy to france to go and go to the, the factory and the coffee guy to italy and, and all these different things um but ultimately what it's about is you know we're going to support you as much as we can in in doing the best job um, for our customers and two different approaches but uh, again there's that cultural string of you know Wegmans aren't creating the future they're a supermarket chain uh, Netflix were and so you know warehouse staff members that they had when they were a DVD mail order business um, at some stage you just got to move them on because they they were you know at the forefront at the cutting edge mm-hmm. and so again uh, like i mentioned earlier everything has context right and it's not to say that one's right or wrong it's to say that it suits those organizations mm-hmm. but ultimately the key strain is that their their focus on the people that they bring into the organization and setting them up for success whether they're there for two years at netflix and then they're gone whether they're there for 20 years at wegmans the idea is when you're working for us and you're a Netflixer or a Wegmanser, mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna give you everything. Totally makes sense. And they're maximizing their, obviously, company mission to uh, deliver it or to execute on it as much as, as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. Vince Lombardi famously asked his players to be ready 10 minutes before a meeting, um, getting started, and then, and then he was setting st- standard how things needs to be done. How someone can develop this high, like almost military-grade military standard and maintain them long-term for somebody who's maybe not as coming from sports, maybe somebody who wants to be more disciplined, what would they, where, where would they start? Yeah, I think that's a, 
to my last answer there, there's, there's cultural strains that you can develop. <clears throat> and I think where they fall down these days is, is when, it's, uh, when it's a top-down order. Um, whereas when there's some sort of accountability to a team and you all know that <clears throat> the coach likes you to be there 10 minutes early and so you, you do that and you keep each other accountable, you know, on a football team, you've got 53 guys, and if all 53 are there, you don't want to be the one that's not there. And so I think there's, you know, since Vince Lombardi, there's kind of been a democratization of leadership a little bit where it's filtered down and isn't so, you know, ingrained in that one individual. I think that's where it can be really uh, impactful. And so for individuals looking to do that, or, or, or take a lesson from that, it would be to create some sort of accountability system mm. you know, with a friend. You can have an accountability partner, even for your, your individual fitness goals, where you might have to report in on a daily basis to a friend and say, hey, I did this today. Because um, I think that that's where the power is. You, do, you don't want to, um, letting the boss down isn't powerful enough these days. It used to be in the days of Vince Lombardi, but now it needs to be <clears throat> letting your teammates down. And on a football team, right. you've got 53 of them, and so you don't want to let 52 of them down because you're the 53rd. Um, and so I think there's, there's real lessons there. And it, yeah, I, I think the, the kind of friendship and the, and the belonging is what you need to clue into rather than trying to do it on an individual basis and only, <clears throat> only really... Uh, kind of upsetting yourself. Mm. Right, I was, uh, to that point, I was listening to Tony Robbins once and he was presenting to, um, to the Marines mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they were all uh, doing some sort of a military training, um, not sleeping for a couple of days, not eating, and uh, he was talking to a general and the general asked Tony why these people, they're great people, they come back home and they are no longer as disciplined. Mm -hmm. And uh, are they like losing motivation or or what what's going on and then tony said no they're not losing motivation it's just that they're keeping the standard um because of it's a community it's a team right and because of that that helps them to have that accountability absolutely yeah and uh in certain environments you, you know uh, this isn't a shock to anyone it, it, it's kind of that idea of uh, you know the 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 doctor that chain smokes or the lawyer that's out doing cocaine at 3 a.m. in the morning, mm. you know, we know it exists. The police officer that, you know, is, is a booze hound. Yeah. We, we know that, you know, we talked about that kind of that right. dark side. There's, there's multiple sides to people. And, and yeah, what, what keeps people accountable is, is a collective. And it's, you know, kind of going back to a lot of the stuff that Simon Sinek talks about in tribes and, and it being inherent in us to want to belong to a tribe. Um, it's that same idea and there's a lot of power in that and, and that's what I mean is like uh, just fundamentally letting your tribe down versus letting one person down is is vastly different and vastly more motivational absolutely so totally so Stephen Caldwell said uh, that you have to build your team to perform at a ruthlessly high level every single day and you don't have to focus solely on winning but you focus on being tough to beat how do you f define the difference between the two and what do you have to do to create this high level performance every day because I think there's a big distinction between focus on winning and focus on being very good tough to beat every single day mm-hmm yeah, this is one of the big misconceptions with pro sport is that the general public think that the teams care about winning and they don't. Mm. And essentially every coach that I've interviewed, which is you know in the hundreds, uh, they, they all say the same thing. Uh, the difference is that winning is an outcome and being hard to beat is a process. And so what you prepare for is being hard to beat. And what, essentially what that means is, going back to what we started talking about with strengths, right. if we are backing our game plan to beat everyone in the NBA, all, right. all 29 other teams, then if we do these things, our process, if we do them well enough every night, then we're gonna lose games 
but more often than not we're going to win and so what what happens is each individual win uh, the um, is less important because we might lose one night but we'll win the next five if we hit our goals and so you're focusing on that process rather than the outcome because with outcomes <clears throat> what happens is uh, the, the highs are too high and the lows are too low whereas with with the process in terms of focusing on individually you know did we achieve our goals did we hit our numbers did we take enough three-pointers from certain spots on the floor whatever it may be um, you're just making small tinkerings every night mm. we just need we need to pass a little bit more in the next game and you can make that adjustment uh, and it, it kind of helps you navigate the ups and downs a lot easier it's a lot smoother uh, but again you know the applicability of that to the business world is we focus on wins you know my background I, I spent a lot of time in the recruitment sector right. and it was always about closing deals it was never about uh, up to that deal we never focused on that how many deals have you closed and so what you end up doing is you adjust your behavior to that whereas <clears throat> the day-to-day -day churn of trying to close deals trying to make meetings trying to get uh, you know job requests from from clients it was all about process hmm. and so you know we're very goal oriented but I'd say we should be journey oriented and we end up hitting our goals along the way anyway and so that's what I mean by being hard to beat is you're just so ruthlessly into the process you know you're so good at cold calls you make your cold calls every single day you you know speak to five candidates every single day uh, you uh, send your five automated emails out to you know the new instagram crowd that mm. that you've got in your funnel every mm. single day mm. that's the process mm. whether they buy or not you have no control over that's the goal get them to buy so focusing on one you're going to be really disappointed and then you'll get really high when one closes but when you focus on the on the process you don't care who buys on one individual day you know over 365 days that this thing is should be a success totally and it, it seems also like it's easier to tweak and to see what's working what's not when you have that uh, very detailed process oriented approach when yeah. you know that okay that for example emails work this thing didn't work it's easier to tweak it and rebalance that as you said in the, in the sports world and then you're you're still on track to deliver whatever you set to. Absolutely. And, and this is why you see sports coaches give press conferences the way they give it, is the media thinks that they care. Media thinks that Steve Kerr cares that they lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers in November. And then you look at Steve Kerr and the way he responds in, in the press conference, he's like, yeah, they're, you know, they're a good team. Uh, we didn't hit these shots. Um, you know, we maybe didn't pass the ball enough and one of our players had an off night and he's just yeah right. we'll, we'll adjust that and then we've got another game in, in two days and if we're right, right that our game plan is going to win we'll win that game if we don't win that game we'll win the next one and, and it's just those those small tweaks it almost reminds me of a, a purposeful skill attainment for anybody like somebody wants to be good at something for example somebody wants to be good in business or in marketing they what they do they define the type of skills they need to be successful to get that outcome and then they define the process of how do they attain those skills and they break them down in days essentially creating their own individual curriculum this day I'm gonna do this and this and this they schedule it on the calendar they keep doing it consistently and then by a certain period of time they actually get to that skill that helps them to get the outcome they're looking for this is what I've read in, in Brendan Bouchard's book mm -hmm. um, habits of high-performance people and I'm like this is this makes so much sense like it's essentially like going to college but you create your own curriculum every single day yeah well you know one of the worlds that I play in is endurance sports and, and triathletes and you know what we're talking about here is it's all well and good for a certain triathlete to say I want to race this race in nine hours what difference does that make if you hit your goal you have no control over what the other 30 
triathletes, someone might come in at eight hours and 58 minutes. So all you can really control is that process. The outcome, you have absolutely no control over. So you might have a personal best by 10 minutes and you do your nine hours, but someone still beats you. So all you can really prepare for is that process. And, and yes, you can say, okay, if I need to, to do it in nine hours, here's the steps that I need to get to that. But ultimately, once you're out there and it's hot and it's windy and there's a crosswind on the bike and all these different factors that play into it, if you had that goal in mind and you thought you were going to win with nine hours, but someone else, mm -hmm. some guy that you'd never heard of from Germany comes in and runs 8.58, now you're disappointed because you didn't win. Whereas you should be grateful that you hit nine hours and that you went through the process of, of getting to that for yourself. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. It's like totally. goal setting is great, but it's you've got to be obsessed with the process, not the actual outcome. Cody, before I ask my last question, where everybody can find you online? Yeah, so just yesterday I relaunched my website, codyroyal.com. Um, so everything's there, my okay. speaking, my book, um, uh, my podcast, which is about to come out. Um, so you can find me there. And then the book, Where Others Won't, is on Amazon. Uh, so you can just punch in Where Others Won't or Cody Royal into the search bar in Amazon and it'll come up. Totally. What legacy would you like to leave behind? I've thought long and hard about this recently. The legacy that I want to leave behind is, uh, we were talking about this before we came on, was I would like to be known as someone who put ideas out into the world and wasn't hampered by uh, myself didn't get in my own way. And I think a lot of people have great ideas but don't put them out there. And, and so my goal has become to share ideas with people and not be, uh, uh, not have paralysis by analysis, which right. is kind of the first question. <laughs> I don't want that anymore. Yeah. And, and you know, I'd, I'd like people to be able to look at me and say, yeah, he had some pretty good ideas and, and um, and was willing to stand up and kind of put his name to them, as crazy as some of them may have sounded, but he put them out there and, and hopefully some of them come to fruition. Totally, well this is, uh, this is amazing and uh, such a, so many great insights in this interview. Thank you so much for coming, it's been amazing and I think anyone who's in business, anyone who is trying to get more discipline or in sports, they can find a lot, a lot of takeaways in this interview. But Cody, thank you so much for joining for my podcast. No, thanks, mate. Thank you.